Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Our world seems more divided than ever, and bad actors are committed to exploiting and deepening those divisions. So how do we fight them? How do we find our way to unity? Our guest this week is Denise Hamilton. Denise's new book, Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future, is available February 6, 2024. Over the past few years, this country has seen a dramatic rise in partisan animosity with dangerous implications for the health of our democracy. The divides between Americans grew even sharper in 2023 with political clashes over reproductive health care, education, and American involvement in numerous wars overseas. We no longer see each other as Americans, but we see each other as separate and apart. Academics and journalists have increasingly considered the possibility of future political violence in America. And polls suggest it's something Americans are worried about. Hi, I'm Denise Hamilton, and I am an inclusion strategist. I believe that the only people that can change the world are the ones who think they can. I move through the world with an inappropriate level of optimism. And I believe if we could figure out how to be indivisible, we would be indestructible. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, Denise, thank you so much for being with us today on Sorry, Not Sorry. Let's just start off by telling my listeners who you are and a little bit about what you do. I am an inclusion strategist, which means I work with organizations all over the country in multiple different industries to help leaders figure out how to implement actual inclusion practices. This is hard work. And I step in to be a support system for leaders that really are committed and want us to be a more inclusive country. And we're just going to jump right into the book because I really enjoyed it. Your introduction tells the story of how Indivisible came to be. And I think it's just a powerful statement of self-reflection. Can you just share that story with us? Are you talking about the George Washington story? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I work with many different clients and produce different products for them. And I was working with one particular client and produced a video about our stories. I believe deeply that our stories tell us who we are. The problem is some of our stories are broken. Some of them are incomplete and some of them are outright lies. And one such story is a story of George Washington's teeth. We've all been told that they were made of wood. And they weren't made of wood. They were made mostly from two materials, rhinoceros and elephant tusks, ivory, and teeth from enslaved people. They would pull their teeth and make dentures for George Washington. And I was really fascinated by why they told a whole generation this story that is just patently untrue. I shared that with the organization that I was working with. And the executive team was given a sneak peek of the content. 
And there was one leader who was furious. He was calling for me to be fired. I had to get out of there. This was not true. This was terrible. And of course, I live in Texas. This isn't my first rodeo. I sent all the documentation. And what happened next was fascinating. Fascinating. The next day he called and said, I looked at the information that was provided and I agree, it is true, but I still don't think we should share this story. And I thought one day the story is so explosive that I need to be fired. And the next day it doesn't matter at all. And what he showed us was something that happens all too often in our society. He was a keeper of the story. I think there's two kinds of people. There's people that are truth seekers, that are open, that are willing to release their stories when they are confronted with new information. And there's a whole different group of people who are committed to keeping the story the same. And that's not going to work for those of us who have been marginalized in this country. Some of these stories don't serve us. So I think it's really important to challenge yourself to make sure you're an actual truth seeker. Early on in this, as you're talking about it, you ask a bunch of important questions and you ask, what is our responsibility to each other? Which I think is sort of like the driving question that this book has to answer, right? So what is our responsibility to each other then? It's not just to the truth, right? There's something beyond just truth. Yeah, I think that is a complex question. I think we have to negotiate it. I don't have an easy, just add water answer. You can't have a 10 second solution for a 10 generation problem. And so I think we have to start with the truth, look at the places that we can create impact, that we can let things go. And then we can see what can we do to creatively remediate harm or create new platforms for people to really succeed and excel. There's a story I have in the book that I absolutely love. When my daughter was little, she was in a ballerina troupe and there were only two little black girls, my daughter and another child. And the dance instructor, she sent home a paper about the next recital saying, please wear this tutu, wear these tights and put your hair in a severe bun. My daughter's hair could do that, but the other little black girl couldn't. And she was devastated, absolutely devastated. She wanted to quit. She felt like she didn't belong. People of color have to deal with racial microaggressions every single day. So microaggressions are those little unintentional insults that basically see people of color as stereotypes, which got me thinking, what if white people had to deal with racial microaggressions? So like, where are you from? No, no, like, where are you really from? Why don't you have an accent? Like a, like a Swedish accent. You know, your English is really, really good. It's like, I can't even tell you have an accent or anything. I don't have an accent. No, that's what I'm saying. You don't speak Gaelic? You don't speak German? Can you say a curse word in European? You know, like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Now, let's be honest. I don't for a second think that instructor meant any harm at all. But the impact, the harm was still the same. It was just thoughtlessness. So I think we have to decouple malice from these conversations. You don't have to want to hurt me to be, in fact, hurting me. And if I'm telling you that you're hurting me, you have to listen because we are interconnected. We are a shared group of people. Kind of what we're doing right now is we're sitting in a boat and there are some of us in the back of the boat saying, ha, look at that big hole in the front of the boat. Honey, we're all sinking. 
everyone is going to say because we're all together. And these little changes are like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like it's still going down no matter how you rearrange the furniture. So I think these bigger ideas of what is our responsibility to each other, I think that's a really important thing to say. I think it's an important thing to ask. And I think I have, in all of my interviews with the Get Out the Vote movement and trying to get young people to vote, people always ask me when I do press, like, what about those young people who just don't think their voice matters? And my answer is always, we have a responsibility to protect each other, to protect the most vulnerable among us. And if we could look at voting, that it's not our self-interests that are at stake, but more the betterment of everyone that's at stake, I feel like people would be uh, more invested in what's happening. Absolutely. We have to be owners, not renters. We have too many people that are professional extractors, only looking at this incredible country through the lens of what they can extract from it. What's the difference between an owner and a renter? An owner is committed to the long-term viability. A renter is just extracting today's usage. What does an owner do? They fix the foundation. They fix the electrical, the plumbing, stuff that nobody sees. They plant trees that they will never sit under. What does a renter do? They use peel and stick tile. Everything is temporary. Everything is what's in it for me. And not only are they not planting trees, they are plucking up the trees that people are sitting under right now. They're committed to going backwards. And what I think is really important is to not give in to the hopelessness and helplessness that is running rampant in our country right now. We are the most powerful people in the world. And we move like we just can't figure it out. All these problems are just too hard. We are a people that can do hard things. We sent somebody to the moon in a tin can with a computer that wasn't even as sophisticated as the phones we have in our pocket. We can do incredible things, but we've talked ourselves out of our power. We've talked ourselves out of our impact. We keep waiting for the Messiah and the Messiah is waiting on you. And so in the book, I really wanted to remind people of who they are and what power they have because the people that are committed to extracting, they count on us tapping out being overwhelmed, being too fatigued, being too tired. Voter fatigue, it happens to the best of us. And experts tells me that this usually happens when voters become disengaged and really tired of all of the political hype. So today I spoke with a political science professor and he really outlined why this happens and the effects it could have on an election. Exposure is the name of the game. Dr. Brian Anderson is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at the Mississippi University for Women. He specializes in political science. Dr. Anderson believes election exhaustion is formed when there is too much exposure through commercials, social media, and other means of getting a candidate's message across. A voter who's been very attentive and happens to have the TV or the computer on quite a lot um, will possibly get this sense of dread. Oh, here's this face again, here's this message again, I'm sick of this uh, slogan, and, the, and they might end up turning either against the candidate or against the process just because they're exhausted. 
You know what else the owner has that the renter does not? Pride. Pride in what they're doing. Pride in their country. They do things out of love. They plant the tree out of love, out of sustenance, out of wanting the next generation to have a bigger tree. I also love that the book makes a strong argument that we should stop focusing so much on what we are fighting against and instead work more to remember what we're fighting for. Why does that matter so much? It matters because if you don't connect profoundly to your why, you're not going to stay committed to the effort. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing this crazy fatigue that is creating this incredible backlash against DEI. And this is kind of how I think about it. Imagine that you had some glasses that didn't allow you to see the color blue. George Floyd's murder knocked those glasses off of your eyes. Now you can see the blue and you are horrified by it. But, oh, there's blue in higher education and there's blue in healthcare. And there's blue in all of these places. And it's overwhelming. And the temptation can be to reach and put the glasses back on because it's easier to not see the problem than to do the work necessary to solve it. And so we have to resist the temptation to succumb to that fatigue and that overwhelm. One thing about the backlash against DEI that I think I find really fascinating is DEI They're tools. That's all they are. They're tools to get towards the goal of being indivisible. And we can disagree about tools. You can say, you know what? I think the current way we implement DEI takes us from zero to three. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, let's go back to zero. Let's go back to the good old days. And no ideas, no suggestions. And owners make suggestions, right? Owners believe in our shared interconnectedness and believe that they want our citizenry to be healthy. We want to be a country that is prosperous. How do you do that if you do not support your actual citizens? I have a general rule. If you say you love America, I'm going to need you to actually love Americans. We saw this a lot, I think, going into 2020, where we were fighting against Trump. But that fight was rooted in fear, right? The fight against something is rooted in fear. So is the opposite of that true? Is like the fight for something rooted in love or in optimism or hope or something that's maybe the opposite of fear? Yeah, I think it's optimism. I think that we have just lost our faith. We've lost our belief in ourselves. And I have a muse. My favorite historical character is Harriet Tubman. And you think about her. She was an enslaved woman. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. She had never been more than a mile from the plantation. Didn't have a map. She was by herself. And she ran from the South to the North for her freedom. That's incredible. And if that wasn't incredible enough, she went back and got three people, then seven people, then four people. I can't even imagine that kind of commitment over the course of multiple years to just help a couple people at a time. We're so impatient. 
We feel like if we can't be president, we're nothing. If we can't be the head of the organization, there's nothing we can do. And it's just not true. If we all were in a stadium and everybody dropped a bunch of trash at their feet, the stadium is wrecked. But what happens if the reverse is true? What if everybody bent down and picked up the trash around their feet? The stadium is clean. So we have forgotten the fact that all of us have a role to play. Everybody's got a part in this journey and in, in this story. And we've allowed discouragement and disappointment to cheat us out of our inheritance. I'm an heir to America. This is a gift that I have been given. This is a beautiful house with good bones. And I'm going to have to do some renovations here and there, just like you do in your house. But we have to love it. We have to believe that it's worth saving. We have to believe that we can, in fact, save it. And we have to do the work and manage our fatigue and exhaustion, but stay committed to the why. And too many people have lost sight of the why. I want to say that this book is so great that we're not even out of the introduction yet. <laughs> I think everyone needs to read this book. It should be mandatory. But I have to comment on one other really important point that you make in the introduction, which is that we've, so, oh, this is so crazy powerful. We've centered understanding someone else's experiences or identities or preferences as a condition for offering them respect. Whew. Absolutely. I don't have to understand. I know that's shocking because we have a lot of language about walking in another person's shoes. I don't really have to understand why you're hungry. I just need to feed you. Hey everyone, today's reminder is that you should respect people's boundaries even if you don't understand them. And especially make sure that you don't take them personally either. Because here's the thing, a lot of people's boundaries are in place because of how they were treated in the past. So they usually won't have anything to do with you anyway. So if you get offended or upset over it, well, you're being rather selfish. You're caring more about the way you feel than the other person that you may have triggered by your actions or something you said. Instead of doing that, just understand that everybody's going to have boundaries based on their history. And that's okay. I mean, you do as well, right? So treat people the way you wish to be treated. If you want people to respect your boundaries, then make sure you respect the boundaries of others, even if you don't understand them. It's like the trajectory is really weird. We don't understand, so we don't support you. And as understanding goes, maybe if we're lucky, if you're lucky, maybe I will help you. But I don't need to understand you. You know, there's a couple of places that we see, like, take the unhoused, right? I'm really fascinated by the way people just jump in if it's a homeless veteran. Because you decided that you understand why they're homeless. So they're more in need of love and support and encouragement than somebody else that you don't understand their reasoning. That's ridiculous. Who do you think you are? You don't have to understand. And I saw this when I um, went to college in Texas. I grew up in New York. And when we sat down for the role, the teachers would say, Kyle Johnson. And she would ask the student, what do you go by? And he would say, Bubba. And I was fascinated. And it happened person after person where they went by another name. Now, I feel like if your parents gave you a name, that's your name. So I didn't understand the logic of why all of these people went by their middle name. But guess what? 
I don't have to understand. You tell me to call you Bubba. Bubba, it is. Hey, Bubba, how are you doing? Because I respect you and I respect your autonomy. We have to respect other people as adults that are worthy of dignity. And instead, we wait until we get it. Now, and the flip side of this is we don't work to get it. We don't read things from these communities. We don't watch movies from these communities. We don't hire people from these communities, but we substitute our judgment of what's going on in these communities and use it as a reason to not support them. It's just a horrible way to move through the world. Can we just start with a baseline of respect and dignity? Why is that so hard? Because we are the center of the universe. We think we deserve all the blessings and wondrous things that we have because we worked so hard. I was in a department store the other day and I saw a pregnant woman that was a cashier. And I literally thought she looked like she was going to die. I, I, she looked so tired, so exhausted. And I wondered, like, if you listen to a lot of people, they think she doesn't work hard. They think she's in this condition because she didn't make the right choices. And I'm looking at her. She's working pretty darn hard from where I'm sitting. And we don't respect people that do hard work. If they didn't go to this Ivy League school or they're not a part of this country club or they don't live in this neighborhood and we are cutting off our own pathway, our own route to genius. I don't know if the cure for cancer has already been born, but because they were born in Watts or Skid Row or the Appalachian Mountains, we'll never hear it. We'll never see it. We can't afford to waste genius. And we do it every single day because we have decided our view of the world, our perspective, our experience is the central one. And there is no center. Nobody's in the middle. We are all valuable. When I think about the metaphor for being indivisible, I think of the human body. The heart and the brain don't argue. Which one of us is more important? Which one of us is better? Which like we just don't do that. If you laid out your intestines end to end, they'd be about 20 feet long. Does that mean they're more valuable than the pituitary gland that handles all of the hormones and enzymes in your body because it's only a gram? No. And your legs are the strongest muscle group in your body. They can take you anywhere in the world. They can do amazing, incredible things, but you're going exactly nowhere. If the tiny little bones in your ear don't regulate your balance, there's no body that's more important than anybody else. We all have to figure out a way to work together and to capitalize on your unique strengths so that we all rise. But that's the catch, right? Are we committed to us all rising or are we just committed to ourselves? And I don't even think if you look at medicine and the body, like, but that's a perfect example of westernized medicine that looks at each individual part of your system as something that's individual rather than it, how it works all together. The fact that something could be wrong and you have to go see four different specialists that could take you up to six months to get all those appointments in and all the test results back. And the fact that nobody is looking at the results from the endocrinologist who's looking from the results of the rheumatologist, but they all look at it like they're in this vacuum instead of as one 
entity, one being in all these different systems that have to work together for people to be healthy. And it's, I feel like that is a perfect analogy. You mentioned school before. Ben is a professor, and I know he wanted to ask you a question about textbooks. You talk a lot about textbooks in the book. You know, there's a particular point where you're talking about nursing textbooks, and in this nursing textbook, uh, the particular publisher issued an apology. You run down the mistakes that this publisher made by listing racial, ethnic, and social characteristics of people and how they may respond to receiving or not receiving medical care in a particular way. And now we're seeing that sort of institutionalized in states like Texas is doing this, Florida is doing this. Many popular conservative textbook publishers, they're already rewriting American history, at least the history of racism. In the edits, they're not so subtle. A recent report by The Guardian has revealed in these textbooks, slavery is presented as black immigration. Imagine that. Ku Klux Klan is fighting against anarchy. Black Lives Matter is blamed for strife with the police, vilified as the good guys. Former President Obama is responsible for harming race relations. They're taking away our stories, not just taking away our stories, but then going forward and telling lies with those stories and further enshrining the lies. And that sort of goes back to the George Washington story that you told earlier. So what is the effect not only of us giving away our stories or giving away our stories by telling these beloved lies, right, the George Washington story, but also then enshrining those stories in policy? And what does that do? It ruins us. That's the simple answer. It ruins us. If we do not really look at the way we communicate and tell the truth, right? Like we are asking people to vote for us, right? We're asking people to be a part of the system. We have a representative form of government and we're asking them to trust us with this power that we're going to do the best things that we can do for them. And to choose to spend your time lying. To choose to spend your time removing independently verifiable truth is absolutely boggling. And I'll tell you what the worst casualty to this is. The absolute worst casualty is trust. A generation that does not trust anything. They don't trust the church. They don't trust college. They don't trust technology. They don't trust science. They don't trust medicine. They don't trust leadership. When you lie to people, you violate their trust. And it is so hard to get it back. So now we're saying, vote, come on, vote. It's important. And it makes that request so much harder because we are feeding them discouragement and dishonesty. I don't think America is so fragile, so flimsy, so weak that we cannot stand any kind of criticism or any kind of improvement. I think this is an incredible country. And when I look at the things that have happened in our history that have been horrific, disappointing, wicked even, I look at those things and I say, but we moved beyond them, but we figured a way out. And we have to use those stories to show our young people that we can, in fact, figure our way out of this. The truth, these great stories, and I do think they're great stories because they show us what we can move from and give us hope that of what we can move to. The biggest casualty is trust. In the book, you also talk about changing language. And that really resonated with me. In the chapter, you include a list of high voltage words like QAnon and incel and Christian nationalist and hashtag me too. 
And you write, and I quote, bad actors often use the third rail because they know that's where the power is. Tell me more about that. I think that we have far too many people that are committed to not understanding each other, taking terms and bastardizing them, taking terms and charging them and rewriting them so they mean something else. There's so many examples. I think that what I've seen in my career, in my work, is the simpler the language, the better. The language is valuable. I believe in scholarship. I think that academics should be doing research. But all too often, we grab a hold of a concept and the world runs away with it and becomes some other beast. And now we're not talking to each other. We're talking at each other. And it is a tool to subvert progress. If I'm committed to misunderstanding you and I grab a hold of this electrifying word, everyone's triggered. They're not hearing me anymore. We're not having a discussion anymore. And again, this goes back to the idea of owners and renters. Owners want to fix it. Renters want to win, right? Like, I don't want to win an argument with you. I want to find a way to do this thing better. And that is an entirely different posture. This Congress is the least productive in American history, with the exception of one, the Great Depression. That Congress met five times, I believe. That's unacceptable. If you thought of yourself as an owner, there are some things that happen in our society that would just be unacceptable. We just couldn't even fathom having a maternal mortality rate that's like a, a developing country. We couldn't tolerate having an education system that creates a permanent underclass, fighting for children to have actual vegetables in their lunch at school, or even just have lunch. It wouldn't even be an argument if we can provide lunch to our children as they learn. There are some things that we have allowed to become hockey puck issues that have no business being hockey puck issues. We need to move as if this is our house and we want to make sure it is in the best possible condition. We use this a lot, language as a way to like other people. It's the opposite of what you're trying to do with the book, right? And it's not just on the right, you know, Alyssa and I are definitely on the left side of things. And I don't want to imply that like this is a political singular issue. One of the things that drives me the craziest on the left is I see people write Trump's name with a capital R in the middle to make rump pop out. And I'm like, first of all, rump, is that the best we can do? But also it's a way to other somebody. It's a way to keep them out. There's no way to understand somebody when you're actually changing the mechanics of a language. And you see this on both sides, like libtard or demoncrat or rethuglicans or this other stuff that makes it really easy to say everything over there is exactly what I don't want anything to do with. And also, the other thing that it does is it's there is no perfect language. Everyone carries their own experience with words, with their own emotions. So there is no perfect language. So if we are just like rearranging letters to invoke something else, then what words are we finding common ground about? Exactly. And I think we've developed a culture of humiliation rather than discussion. We now enter a new phase of the Trump presidency amidst the outrageous, outlandish left wing chaotic mob behavior of socialist Democrats. American momentum is now around winning the winning that outsider candidate Donald Trump promised us not the anarchy Democrats 
a.k.a. demon rats, want to impose on us? You go to a college campus and you find a girl with blue hair and a nose ring and you ask her a question and you embarrass her because she doesn't know the answer. Or you go to a Trump rally and you ask them a couple questions and you look for the most ridiculously dressed person so you can humiliate them. Do you think somebody's going to come to your side because you humiliated them? I don't think so. I'm literally just thinking of every single time I have shared a video where a Trump supporter has looked ridiculous. And I think it's important that we stop and really figure out if what we're sharing, because social media makes it real easy for these things to spread and to confuse the dopamine with that this is the right thing to do because the dopamine rush that you get. And we need to be asking, like, what am I contributing right now to not only my social media feed, but also to my circle of family and friends? Am I making things better? Do you think that there's a way to effectively convince people not to do stuff like this? Isn't it counterproductive to use any of this as a strategy? I would love, 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 love nothing more than to see some social media content that revolved around people talking to each other and trying to find common ground. Can we be the people that create that dynamic, right? And it's really hard because these platforms are incentivized by our horror. Pain is what works, makes money, right? So it's very hard to convince people to not demonize the other person. But I think that's what we have to do. It's really funny. A friend of mine asked me, she was a founder of a tech startup, and she asked me to send her pitch deck out to a group of women in my circle that live in Texas. And her strategy was to start her work in states like Texas, like the Midwest and the South. And I'm previewing the deck because you should always preview something before you forward it on. And in the deck, she says that her strategy is to start with flyover states. And I called her and I said, you want me to send something to somebody to ask them for money for you? And you call the place that they live a flyover state? It was casual disrespect. And I think that that's become so normalized. That's its own work. How do I stay connected to seeing people as people and not trying to disrespect them into coming to my position. That is just not how anything works. And it's funny how we understand it. It's really obvious in the example I just gave you. But yet we still keep demonizing and making fun of and humiliating anybody we can get our hands on. It's bizarre. I think it's easy to see the divisions across social or ideological divides, but we also see them a lot inside movements, which are supposed to be aligned. I mean, we look at Joe Manchin, for example, most Democrats despise him and he does not fit neatly into some of the really important ideological identities of Democrats. 
He's not great on abortion, right? He's terrible on climate causes. But he is also part of a Senate majority that has enabled the approval of judges, including a Supreme Court justice, at a time when we needed that so much. And I know I have had uncharitable thoughts about Manchin, believe me. And I see people in the progressive movement spaces over the years who have basically been willing to completely throw out a majority to defeat Manchin. Like, how do we overcome that? So I want to back up a little bit. Change, any kind of change is incredibly hard. And I want to give you an example of how hard it really is. I heard a a presentation from Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he was talking about the tide and how language sometimes hampers scientific advancement because the words that we have chosen years and years ago are not accurate. So if you build your experiment on the broken language, you're not going to get a good result. So the good example of that is the tide. The tide doesn't go in and out. There's literally two bulges of water on the earth and the earth goes in and out of those bulges. And that got me thinking about the term sunset. The sun does not set. It's the earth that sets. That is not a question. That's a fact. It's the earth that sets. So let's say you and I are going to start a campaign to change it from a sunset cruise to an earth set cruise. We would have a hard road. I think that's really important for people to understand. It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be right. Our stories do not give us up easily. They don't. So I think sometimes we don't budget appropriately for the difficulty of change. So you have a movement, you have a group, you have any kind of effort that you're trying to do. It's not really logical to expect everyone to be in lockstep. You've got to figure out how are you going to navigate the points of differentiation? And all too often, we decide just to turn on the other person and eat them alive. We cannot eat each other alive. Again, this idea of destruction as a tool to accomplish goals. I just haven't seen it work. I just haven't seen it work. So I think this idea of bringing into any effort that you're trying to do a pragmatic understanding of the difficulty of it and measures that help you deal with it when it comes, not if it comes, when it comes. And I think we have this expectation that everyone is going to just hook arms and sing kumbaya and be on exactly the same page. We're all different people. It seems we've been measured almost all of our lives. When we were infants with our height and our weight, and as we grew, it became our, our speed and our strength. And even in school with our test scores and today with our salaries and job performance. It seems as if those personal averages are almost always used to measure where we are in comparison to our peers. And I think we should look at that a little differently. That personal average is just that. It's something very personal and it's for you. And I think if you focus on that and work to build that, you can really start to accomplish some really amazing things. And so it takes a really deep commitment on the part of the people who are trying to activate a change to really control themselves. People ask me, how do you do this work? How do you go into these places where people say the most disrespectful things to you? And I said, the way I'm able to do it is because I don't try to control them. I control me. I fight fire with water. I don't escalate with them. I don't let them frame the discussion. 
I don't let them tell me what words mean. I think that we have to all work on our communication skills. I know that's not the sexiest answer in the world, but that's what we got. And we're getting ready to go into this election year. And I, between deep fakes and the ability to turbocharge hate, to run it around the world a hundred times before the truth even gets out of bed, I think this is going to be a really difficult time. And I almost want to have a team meeting. Okay, here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Here's what we're going to work towards. Like we need to have some principles, like rules of engagement. We don't have any rules of engagement. I think it goes back to trust, which is what you mentioned in the beginning of the interview. It does all come down to trust, especially with the internet, deep fakes, all the things. It's very hard to know what is real and what is not real. I was going to ask you how we convince people to make the necessary changes, but throughout this conversation, I'm realizing that I think it's maybe more important to ask how we make these changes in ourselves first. And that's not the answer that people want. They always want me to tell them, how did you get them to do that? Tell me what the tactics were. The tactics were I listen. How do I make changes within myself? I think that we've developed this knee-jerk reaction. That is ridiculous. That's stupid. That's terrible. And if we could turn that down and say, where is this person coming from? What is animating them? What do they get if they accomplish their objective? Am I providing them a solution? Am I providing anything that speaks to their deepest fears? Because if I'm not, why would they come to my position? So I think there's like a slowing down and a being truly thoughtful and not in a manipulative, like Machiavellian way, but just I want us to find some common ground. Let's find the places we agree. Just think if this Congress had spent some time working on the things where they agree. How many laws would have been passed? How many? It's crazy because there is a lot of agreement and we're being lied to. We're not as far apart as people think we are. People benefit from this division. They're making money off of this division. We just can't let them. How do I do it? I stop. I listen. I take a beat. I reschedule. This is my favorite thing to tell executives to do. If somebody comes in hot and they want to argue with you, Linda, I really want to give you my full attention. Could we talk at two o'clock? That way I can shut the door and we can talk and be uninterrupted. Just think how powerful that is. Now, when Linda comes at two o'clock, she's not on 10 anymore. She's like on five or six. And maybe you could get somewhere. But again, you only do that if you're trying to preserve Linda. If you're trying not to have things escalate. So I think it's about choosing what we want to do, what's important to us, what we care about, and acting consistently with that. I've seen a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. You know, my book hits everybody on both sides of the aisle. I've seen people be so incredibly unkind, disrespectful, minimizing. And I often wonder, what result do you think is going to come out of that? You're trying to get to California but you're driving in the wrong direction. Well, how do you think you're ever going to get there? I think we have to be smarter, not angrier. You know, in the book, you argue that we should choose justice over peace. And I think in our movement spaces, we equate the two, right? But they're not the same. So why is it that we should choose one over the other? I think peace is easy. I think it's easy to just turn your gaze away from something that you see that's wrong. 
it can be very expensive to stand up and say something is wrong. And so very often people choose peace. They choose the easiest path. I don't want to take on Rick in the meeting. I heard Rick say that racist comment in this meeting. And I have the option to say, Rick, why did you say that? I'm not going to do that because peace, harmony, I don't want to rock the boat. We need some boat rockers. Being kind includes telling the truth and standing up for what's right and um, doing it in a way, again, I know it's corny, but do it in a way, trying at least to do it in a way that's loving, that you have the actual goal of coming together and solving the problem. So this kind of looking away when you see something terrible happening, that's not justice. It's peace. And we have a lot of people who are totally comfortable. You know, we have this new phenomenon where something happens on the side of the road, a car accident or a fight, and everybody picks up their phone to film it, but nobody goes in to help or stop it. That's not the people we want to be. And what kind of country do you have if that's how you relate to each other? So I think we have to be honest about the times that we're scared. We're scared to say what's right, scared to death, and do it anyway. Finally, what gives you hope? I've seen it. I've seen people really try. I've seen leaders literally remove policies overnight once they are made aware of the damage. I've seen people who hated each other come together and figure out how to work together. I've seen it. I believe that it can happen again. There's a history that we have of how far we've come. And then there's the personal experiences. And we really have given up. It's almost like we are so tuned in to social media experiences that we forget our own. We forget the people that helped you or tapped in when you needed some support or gave you some information that you really needed. How do we cultivate more of that? That's what indivisible looks like. So I believe I move through the world with an irrational level of optimism. And my job is to persuade everyone else to do the same. Well, Denise Hamilton, you give us hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. Let me just close my initial remarks by, by talking about bringing this country together. You know, um, Bobby Kennedy gave one of his most, gave one of his most famous speeches uh, on a dark night in Indianapolis, right after Dr. King was shot. Some of you remember uh, reading about this speech, some of you were alive when this speech was given. He stood on top of a car. Uh, he was in a crowd of African-Americans. And he, he delivered the news that Dr. King had been shot and killed. And he said, at that moment of anguish, he said, we've got a choice. So we've got a choice in taking the rage and bitterness and disappointment and letting it fester and dividing us further so that we no longer see each other as Americans, but we see each other as separate and apart and at odds with each other. Or we could take a different path, 
that says you know, we have different stories, but we have common dreams and common hopes, and we can decide to walk down this road together. We've been fed a lie. We've been told that we have to overcome our differences to be unified. I call bullshit. Our differences are not to be cast aside. Yes, sometimes they require extremely difficult conversations and self-examination, painful changes, and some may not be surmountable. But we can't pretend we don't have differences. As Denise Hamilton argues right in the title of her book, our differences are strengths we can use to forge unity. There are so many people and entities who do not want us united. There are so many dangerous and powerful people who are laughing and gloating and strategizing over our differences and our divisions. We cannot allow them to win. We cannot allow them to take our power. It's an existential threat to our nation and to our humanity. I urge us all to do the work Denise suggests in her book, Indivisible, before it's too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.